Order, order. The Statistical Criminal Court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Me presiding. Uh, today it looks like we have a guy who got arrested for something minor. And this is an arraignment, so we're going to decide how much money he needs to pay us in order to have any chance of resuming his normal life, maintaining his job, keeping custody of his children, and generally just not seeing his whole meager life fall apart before this crime, whatever it was, is resolved. I'm going to set bail at a completely arbitrary $500. I'm sorry, what? You say you don't have that kind of money. Do you have family and friends that could help? They're poor too? Yes, well... That sounds like a YP and not an MJP, a your problem and not a municipal judge problem, but... Statistically speaking, most people have to pay a little bit of money to get out of jail once they've been arrested, whether that's cash bail or some sort of bond system. Do you think you're special, sir? Oh, you're saying... You're saying you could afford slightly less than that? My good man, I've made an arbitrary decision, and that arbitrary decision stands. This is the Statistical Criminal Court. There are no special cases. You're saying that you have a family to support and that rent is due. Well, I suppose you might have thought about that before you did a crime. Or you're saying you're not guilty. Where have I heard that before? We'll just have to see, won't we? Oh, you're saying that all you want is an opportunity to prove your innocence. Well, then you've come to the right place, sir. That's what courtrooms are for. Locking you up until you pay an arbitrary amount of money is the beginning of how justice is served in this country. Given the current case backlog in our overloaded public defender's office, depending on how long the prosecutor's office wants to drag their feet or let you marinate in the hope that you'll just cave and take a plea bargain, I'd say with a degree of confidence, your case will come to some sort of resolution in, say, between a few months and a couple of years. Yes, years. There is a non-zero amount of cases that take years to resolve. Statistically speaking. I remember once this old cuss, what was his name? William B. Mitchell, yes. Sounds like a name of an old Wild West actor. And just as grizzled. He stayed in jail for 33 months before he cracked and took a deal. Yes, yes, 33 months. He was 72 years old. We just kept him in there cooking. Of course, his public defenders kept quitting. Four of them quit. But that didn't matter. Man, that guy had spunk. Anywho. Oh, you're saying if we kept you in there even a couple weeks, you'd lose your job and your housing and probably custody of your children. Well, if that's true, you really should have thought about that before committing this petty crime. Oh, you're still professing your innocence. Fine, fine. In that case, you really should have thought about that before being poor. You're saying it's not just poor people, but 40% of Americans reportedly can't cover a $400 expense, making any sort of pretrial bail requirement a fundamental violation of those people's constitutional rights to due process and the presumption of innocence? Well, that is a heck of an argument, sir. But this is a municipal court, not the Supreme Court. I'm afraid I'll only be considering facts about whether or not you committed this very minor crime. You're saying that when defendants like you are either bailed out or released on their own recognizance, the charges are dropped nearly 60% of the time? Whereas among defendants left to wallow in jail, over 90% take a plea bargain? You're saying you can't adequately defend yourself from behind bars and your public defender has nearly 200 other cases besides yours and may struggle to give yours the necessary attention it deserves? And therefore your ability to effectively defend yourself quite literally, statistically, depends on whether or not you remain incarcerated? Well, look at the brain on this one. That's a very convincing argument. And one I might be swayed by if I weren't a character in an audio dramatization about how fucked up our pretrial system is. Statistically.
because I am such a character and a dramatization, and because only 24 to 28% of defendants are released on their own recognizance, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to release you either. Look, I've grown quite fond of you in our brief interaction, so I'd like to offer a bit of advice if I may. Try to be less poor next time. The criminal legal system works out a lot better for people if they aren't poor statistically speaking. Oh, and also if they aren't black or any other demographic minority. I personally don't see race because that's the sort of thing statistically a person like me would say. Even in the year 2020, if you can believe it, people still say that shit. So I can't tell if you're a person of color or not. But statistically speaking, it would be a lot better if you weren't. Yes, yes. Poor people and people of color. That's right. They get fucked real good in this system. Real, real good. Statistically speaking. Indeed, good luck to you as well, sir. And I do hope if you ever find yourself in the statistical criminal court again, you are considerably less poor. It really would go just so much more smoothly for you. Ta. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 10. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Take that, Dick Wolf. Am I right? And I guess also Bill Pullman. And if you're like, that was a really dumb skit, Luke. Those are all actual statistics. Most of them were actually Spokane statistics. Some of them were national because I couldn't find the Spokane statistics. In the case of the defense attorney that has nearly 200 cases, that is a public defender in Spokane right now has over 190 cases. A buddy of mine just checked with him this week. How's your Saturday going? Glad you aren't pouring in jail. Anyway, hey, y'all, it's Luke. This is your July 4th episode of Range. Some people call it Independence Day. Other people say Independence for whom, right? Seemed like pretty much all of white America learned about Juneteenth a couple weeks ago. So yeah, maybe we have competing conceptions of freedom in this country, which is actually kind of apt for the topic of our conversation today, which is the bail system, pretrial detention, jail in general, what my guests call the criminal legal system rather than the criminal justice system for reasons that will become clear. Not a lot of freedom in the old pokey. I almost said pokey. I meant pokey. The who's gal lockup, the slammer, the old stony lonesome. Talking about jail. Not a lot of freedom there. But at least everybody gets treated equally under the law in this system, right? We don't play favorites when it comes to jail, do we? Would you be shocked to learn jail is actually profoundly unequal, especially as my silly little skit suggested. If you're poor, there's a whole different system of justice for you, thanks to cash bail. I'm not going to dilly-dally here in the intro. There's a really long, really deep conversation with my two guests today, helping us pick apart and think through in depth, certainly a system that's been with us our entire lives, but which I'd be willing to bet the ramifications of which we probably haven't thought that much about. Unless we happen to have had run-ins with the police, in which case I'm sure we've thought a lot about it because we were probably stuck in jail for a really long time with no hope of getting out for even minor offenses. And maybe, probably, definitely for things that we shouldn't even be in jail for in the first place, like addiction. Gah! Damn it, I'm getting too chatty. Okay, so briefly, 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 I didn't want to have a discussion about jail until I had a discussion about the way jail affects crime the interrelationship between how much we jail people versus how much crime there is in our society. 
because that's the assumption, right? We assume that because we have a jail, bad people go in and crime rates go down. Is that a fair, like societal wide assumption? Well, you know what they say about assumptions. They make an asset of you and the millions and millions of people we lock up. This happens to be a really good time to be talking about this. Because of coronavirus, jails across the country and our own Spokane County Jail have let out a significant amount of people in order to keep the rest of the population safe. And now we have about three months worth of data about what happens when, in the case of Spokane County, you let out 40% of the jail population. I wrote an essay about this. It's in the Range newsletter. You should subscribe to if you want to. That is a plug, but it is also pertinent information. I'll leave a link in the show description. But long story short, we let people out and crime rates have actually stayed the same in Spokane City. Technically, they've gone down. I don't think we can prove that letting people out of jail made the crime rates go down, but they certainly didn't go up. So having a thousand people all day, every day in our jail in Spokane is not keeping us safer. It's just locking a lot of people up and not incidentally costing a shitload of money. Money that could be better spent, I don't know, in drug addiction treatments or other diversionary services, which is a perfect tip for our conversation today about cash bail because 70% of people in our jail are not convicted of anything. They're just sitting there because they can't pay bail. And because they're in jail and not home, they can't keep their homes, they sometimes lose their kids, they can't get the treatment they need for the addiction they have, you know, if they have an addiction. It's actually profoundly destructive to not just people's lives, but to our society. When someone's enough on the edge that they end up in jail, and then you just push them further over the edge, do you think that creates good outcomes for the society as a whole, or bad ones? There's this whole other meta-narrative, this whole philosophical idea of America that we're supposed to be a redemptive place, a place where people can remake themselves. But we make, as we'll see in this interview, this discussion, how profoundly difficult we make redemption, not just in America, but in Spokane. My two guests today work at The Bail Project. It's a national organization that has a branch here. Not only are they like pillars of the community and some of the fiercest advocates for the rights of incarcerated folks I've ever met, they also had their lives profoundly affected destroyed by the carceral system. So the stories they're going to tell are not anecdotes, they're lived experience. This is probably going to be a two-parter because the first part is just a lot of us talking about the experience of incarcerated folks and what it means, what life is like before you get there, what life is like in. And I think we need to really understand that and live with it for a while, right? It's going to be an hour of your day, not nine years of your life. Because public defenders, defense attorneys will tell you that when somebody is in jail and they can't make bail, so they just have to sit there and they have to basically lose their entire life. Defense attorneys say even people that are have really, really strong cases start doing something weird. People are begging them to get them plea bargains on cases that these public defenders knew that they could beat if they just had the time to do it. Weird. Why wouldn't people want to just fight for their innocence? Friend, that's what our guests are here to talk about today. Angel Tamio, Sabrina Ryan Helton of The Bail Project, coming up right after this. All right, well, let's just get cracking. I've got, a, I've got like a million questions for you guys, so uh, <laughs> maybe let's just start and see where we get. My guests today on range are Angel Tamio and Sabrina Ryan Helton from The Bail Project. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Yep, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, super excited. Yeah, I am too. Uh, so maybe we can just jump right into it. What's the, uh, what is The Bail Project? Well, the 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 short description is that we are the 11th site um, in a national nonprofit organization. We bail people out of jail who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. 
um, and then connect them with services. Services being like uh, like public defender, but also anything they, that might have landed them in jail in the first place? Yeah. Um, we I always tell my clients we want to connect you with services so that whatever would be in the way of you returning back to court, we want to help you get over that through it, around it. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully in the end, you know, you might have some stability along the way. The folks that we serve, um, our data says that more than two thirds of them, well, up to 70% of them are are homeless or couch surfing. And about equally as much are struggling with substance abuse disorder. And then probably about two thirds of them um, may have a co-occurring disorder as well. So, you know, if we can kind of find folks the ways and means to well-being, you know, we want to kind of help guide them there. Um, that's not to say that we don't do any other things. You know, we have been known to provide shoes and clothing at release. <laughs> um, wow, yeah. And, you know, during this pandemic, you know, we we had some pretty good partners and were able to provide like food. And two of the things that we definitely provide for our clients is reminders, court notifications, and also transportation. So um, transportation being the number one reason why people don't return back to court here in Spokane. So, right. Uh, and, oh, go ahead, Sabrina. I was just going to throw out there, Angel. I know um, since you've been on leave the last couple of weeks, we just got um, actually new data that says that 91% of the people that we bail out um, either have a current or history of um, drug use, mm. chaotic drug use. I believe it. <laughs> Me too. That's incredible. So we'll, we'll talk about this in more detail later and I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead, but part of what the, the assumption here is that, and this is part of the national discussion we've been having is that maybe jail isn't the best first place for people with a history of drug use. Absolutely not. And that's kind of your guys' assumption as well, right? Yeah. Definitely. So you've kind of already talked about it a little bit, but one of the things that I think is so cool about this organization is just like the way you present yourselves. And so the people that do roles like yours in, in various cities across America, you call yourselves bail disruptors. What does that mean to you guys? Uh, so bail disruptors disrupt the um, two-tiered system of cash bail and pretrial detention. And basically what we do by going in and posting bail for folks who can't afford to post bail for themselves is release them on their own recognizance. Um, right. It gives the lie that to, um, or shows the truth that people don't need money to come back to court. Having money doesn't make people any safer to be in the community. And so we have our job and what the job of basically our entire organization is to disrupt that system and show people that there is another way, a better way, a more humane way to address the social issues of our communities. I'm trying to sort of approach this from a level of like, if you've never thought about bail before, if you're just, you know, a person who, whose only experience with thinking about bail is like hearing you know, Mariska Hardigay on SVU on, <laughs> you know, on Law and Order be like, oh, he's going to make bail and he's going to be out and we're going to lose him or whatever, something like that. <laughs> you maybe haven't thought about the underlying, uh, the underlying assumption that is built into bail, which is 
if you have a certain economic means, you deserve to be on the street. Like the only thing that's really stopping two people that commit the exact same crime and get the exact same bail Mm -hmm. is not necessarily their history of previous, you know, crimes or whatever. It's literally their ability to give a thousand dollars or whatever, $500 to the state. Correct. Right. Absolutely. So basically a little bit of history um, about our organization. It began in, uh, in the Bronx, New York and our CEO, Robin, her and her husband were both public defenders and friends with a lot of public defenders. And they just kept seeing like, it's heartbreaking, right? That these courtrooms full of black and brown bodies and people are begging them to get them plea bargains on cases that these public defenders knew that they could beat if they just had the time to do it. But the people who were incarcerated waiting for their trials, sometimes for years, you know, were just like, I need to get back to my family. We're about to lose our home. I'm the primary breadwinner. And so they kind of put their heads together and said, you know, what would be the one thing that we could do that would make a difference in people's lives? And they decided to post bail for their clients. And so all of them pitched in their own money and created this fund and started posting bails for people. And that grew into the Bronx Freedom Fund, which over the course of 10 years, they posted bail for uh, about 2000 people. And that's incredible. Of those 2000 people, somewhere in the range of uh, mid 90 percent, 94 percent, I believe, of people showed up for every court date. And the really incredible thing is that when compared to 2000 people who did not get out, 90% of the people on the same charges, same everything, same bail amounts who were not released, 90% of those people wound up taking a plea bargain or Mm -hmm. ending up with a conviction of the 2000 people that they did post bail for only only 40% of those people wound up with a conviction. The other 60% had their cases completely dismissed. Okay, cool. So that's another, I don't want to jump ahead, but that's, (laughs) that's, this is so good. Mm -hmm. So let's just put those two stats in people's heads for right now about one of the reasons bail is an emancipatory, and I would say a democratic, uh, the the ability to get released on your recognizance rather than sitting in jail Mm. is that in, in, at least in the experience of New York, where this, where this organization was founded over the course of the first decade, 2000 people who got bail 40 or what did you say 40% of their cases got dropped or 60% 60% of their so cases 60% of their cases got, got dropped dismissed. yeah okay and then of the people that didn't get bailed out 90 some went to wound up with a conviction yeah they wound up with a conviction they took a plea bargain and they got convicted yeah and what that what that tells us is that you know jail is a a marinator right for prosecutors right. it's a pressure right. cooker yeah and it also tells us that like uh, like Brian Stevenson says, it's better to be white and guilty or rich and guilty. Yeah. I think that's what he said. Brian Stevenson said, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent in this country. In this country. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about that more later. The, um, <laughs> the, one of the things that I love about this, what you, you said you were the 11th bail project. 
Spokane yeah. is? Yeah. Because here's the thing that I, I didn't realize that actually, that's even cooler. What I was looking, I was looking at the map, knowing that it started in the Bronx. There's like, mm-hmm. look, there's like 20 locations now, it looks like. Yes. And, uh, th- but west of Austin, Texas, there's only LA, San Diego, and Spokane. So how did the Spokane Bail Project start so early? What was, what was it about Spokane that got this started so quickly? Our community. (laughs) Yes, our community. You know, there's been a lot of work done to um, defer a new jail being built. Right. Um, Probably in the last 10, 11 years, um, they've managed to kind of hold off um, the system from deciding to build a bigger jail. We know that in Spokane County, our jail capacities are usually like bursting at the seams. Right. Um, our, our jails have the capacity to hold about 750 people, but on any given day in normal circumstances, um, you can find anywhere between 950 to 1,000 people um, in custody. And that's like an average. That's an average number on a normal year. That it, it is. Yeah. And um, I know in my experience, this causes lots of problems. You know, we've had um, several years where we would have consecutive deaths. And back in 2015 and 2016, right. I think there were like five deaths in that one year. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. And then um, recently, and uh, uh, I believe in like 2017, 2018, what did we have like seven or eight deaths in, yeah. in the year? That's so awful. And it is. Nobody should die in jail. Um, and, some, but, and there were suicides too, right? There were some suicides? There were suicides, overdoses. overdoses. In 2015, the MacArthur Safety and Justice Challenge came to town and lots was revealed. A lot of like racial disparities in the jail as it pertains to the jail. A lot of things came to light about what, what what's going on. And the community just kind of stepped up and, and said... Um, we need to do something. It, again, it boiled down to like, what's the quickest thing that we could do to lower the populations in our jail? And right. and that was bail. And so a group got together and decided, let's start a community bail fund. Um, somebody did some research and and the bail project was found. And, and they got invited out there to go take a look at the model. And it was kind of decided in there in those meetings and taking a look at what the bail project does and what Spokane needs, where the bail project was like, why don't you just let us come to town? Wow, that's awesome. You know, so like within just a a series of of several weeks, the bail project was in town. People applied for this bail disruptor job and then we just hit the ground running. (laughs) So that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Literally within like three weeks from the t- from our first interview to moving into our little office at Northwest Justice Project. Yeah. That's amazing. And what year was that again? December of 2018. Okay. That's great. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was a concerted effort from lots of different stakeholders in the community. Right. There was Northwest Justice Project, Empire Health Foundation, um, the city, the county, who else? There was a couple of other um, organizations that were kind of part of this push for a community bail fund. And so it increased um, the resources available to really launch this project in a meaningful way. Um, and Empire Health Foundation 
was uh, originally in a position um, to fund this community bail fund. And instead, they were able to use that lump sum of money that they were going to use to bail people out to provide resources instead. And just to be clear, Empire Health Foundation, their main mandate isn't criminal justice stuff. They're they're thinking about human health outcomes. And yeah. so one of it's amazing to me that one, they were one of the founding organizations of this because they were seeing the negative health outcomes, not just for the people who are incarcerated, but their families, the kids that depend on them, the you know significant others, maybe the larger family that you're seeing really bad health outcomes when a member of the family gets incarcerated. Yeah, um, I really have a lot of respect for Empire Health Foundation for recognizing mass incarceration as a public health crisis. Yeah. And also, you know, for being being very aware. They're an amazing partner because they're aware of the social determinants of health. Yeah. Um, and, and they're actively doing something to address that need within our community. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Can we, so what drew you guys, you two, so the two bail disruptors in Spokane, what drew you to the work? Um, can we maybe talk a little bit about your backgrounds and with uh, justice involvement? Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you, why don't you go first, Sabrina? Um, so, you know, as we were talking about social determinants of health and ACEs, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which was a study that was began in the seventies by Kaiser. And they discovered that when children are exposed to trauma, they have certain outcomes. If your ACEs score is four or higher, you're like 60% more likely to have heart disease or diabetes. Um, And also children who become adults and have this ACEs score of four or higher are 10 times more likely to use intravenous drugs. Wow. Um, and it, it's a very well-respected and, and um, proven study time and time again. So on that, uh, my ACE score is nine, nine out of 10. Wow. Um, and, you know, I had this childhood uh, that was very tumultuous and traumatic um, in a lot of ways. And by the time I was 21, I was a single mother who had lost her child to CPS. I was an intravenous meth addict, um, and I wound up in prison for eight years. Wow. Um, and so I, you know, I did my time and I took advantage of all of the resources and opportunities that were in there. And I managed to come out and thrive in spite of prison, not because of prison. Right. Um, and so after I got out, I, you know, came back here to Spokane and, and met some other people who were doing some advocacy work uh, around, you know, illegal financial obligations, which I had a ridiculous amount of, mostly because of interest. And so I, I got the opportunity. Um, Sorry, can you briefly explain what legal financial obligations are just for oh. people that aren't aware? <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Legal financial obligations or LFOs are fines and fees, um, non-restitution fines and fees uh, that are assessed by the court when you're found guilty of a crime. Okay. Um, and so when I wound up going to prison in 1999, I had been assessed about $5,000 in um, legal financial obligation. And 
I made payments for eight years straight while I was in prison and I always had good prison jobs. And by the time I got out of prison, my fines had ballooned to $12,000 because of interest. Wow. So I got involved with advocacy for that. And, you know, it took a long, hard four years of fighting. But in 2018, we got the uh, LFO reform bill passed that set interest at zero. That's amazing. And yeah, and we it it provided a pathway for people to go in and say, hey, I'm on social security. Like this is this is really harmful to me. And the courts can waive all of the interest and the bulk of the legal financial obligations. So that got me really excited um, about advocacy. And I knew, you know, from my own experience that I could not be the only person with a story like mine that wound up in prison when what they really needed was help. Mm-hmm. Right. And so <clears throat> with that advocacy group, we found out that the bail project was coming to town to do a presentation and I didn't know anything about it. So I went to this presentation and instantly I was like hooked. I, I could completely see the vision and the mission. And, um, and I knew that that, I wanted to be a part of that. And so I did everything I could to really like bring him here. (laughs) And then I applied for the job and, and it's right where I'm supposed to be. That's awesome. How about you, Angel? I, I always love to hear her story because as, but before the bail project, I had seen Sabrina around, but I, I didn't really have an opportunity to really get to know her. Um, but my experience, you know, I'm born and raised here in Spokane. I'm formerly incarcerated. Um, my experience is mainly in the various county jails, you know, I've, I've done the tour from Portland, Oregon, <laughs> all, <laughs> all the way across Washington and Idaho and uh, here in Spokane mainly. And, you know, I'm also a, uh, a woman in recovery from lots of things. You know, I'm, I'm also in the ACES score of nine club wow. as well. So, you know, along with all of that, I'm also a survivor of domestic violence And I came into like this real recovery um, a little over three years ago, about three and a half years ago. And I was in a domestic violence program locally here in Spokane. And I met a teacher there. Her name is Carmen Pacheco. And um, we just kind of like click. And she had hired me to kind of help her do some social justice and criminal justice reform work. And, you know, in the midst of all of that, we just kind of had this opportunity to sit down together and she asked me, you know, so tell me your story. And so I proceeded to tell her, you know, that I I had started out my life having to live with a single mom and born here in Spokane and uh, raised here. And my mom kind of fell on some hard times and we had to move from Spokane to the Yakima Valley where, where I have a, the rest of my family. I'm number 11 out of 12. And, and one of my sisters had, had a house there that my mom and we could, we could live in. Um, and so I moved to the Yakima Valley and hated it. 
I lived in this little, <laughs> little tiny town of Toppenish, Washington and, okay. and feeling so displaced, you know, I'm an enrolled member of the Colville tribe and lived on the Yakima reservation, but being raised here in Spokane, I'm considered an urban Indian. So I'm not Indian enough for the Indians there, but you know, clearly I'm not a white person either. Right. Um, and feeling displaced, like kind of clicked with some people and they happened to be part of a gang and I became quickly gang affiliated. And, you know, wow. that's kind of started this, this career of dealing drugs and kind of being in the mix. And, and, you know, this helped me have money and, right. you know, helped me help my mom. And a few years later, moving back here to Spokane, um, I kind of just started right in, you know, juvenile delinquency, I guess you can call it. <laughs> well, that's what they used to call it then. But yeah, you know, I, right. I was just kind of this kid and all that stuff. That was all while you were a juvenile. Yeah, while well, I was ju- juvenile in Yakima, but I moved here to Spokane and and um, still kind of stayed in the lifestyle. But right. along the way, you know, I you know, I'm an addict. And so a lot of the reasons why I, I you know, I started coming in and out of jails and I would move away and I would end up in jail somewhere else. And so fast forward to uh, right before like the year 2000 and I, I got pregnant with my first son and um, I just kind of stopped everything and I went to school and you know, I, I, I did better. I was a parent. I was a college student. I got this career. I got married and, and, um, you know, did pretty good for a while here in Spokane. My husband, he, he ended up in prison on a life sentence and, um, and it was not too long after that, that my life quickly unraveled. You know, I met somebody else and, um, that's when my experience with being, um, subject to domestic violence happened and and it was really kind of a rough time in my life and I found myself in those same situations like Sabrina talked about. I was fleeing a domestic violence situation and my partner or my abuser then came through in the middle of the night and stole our children and um, and without my children, without being a partner or a wife or anything, you know, I, I quickly reverted back to being an addict, you know, an active addiction. And so I became involved in the, um, in the family court, um, eventually in the child welfare system, I was CPS involved in, and then that along that and this healing path that I decided to take, I met Carmen and, and, you know, so my, my, my story kind of became full circle with her and she just is like, you know, you have this, this story and you're clearly a leader and we would, come and hang out a while and, and see what other people are doing with your same experiences. And so I became a family violence and domestic violence advocate here in Spokane. And then eventually I found myself being an advocate for parents who are in the child welfare system. So when I started to kind of recognize all of the, the, the links, you know, people who, you know, that was my story. Yeah. I went to jail and, you know, it didn't help my cause <laughs> to get my children back. I was, I right. slipped further away, you know, um, sitting in jail. I slipped further away from me having my children, having access to them, being able to go to court. Um, I lost m- my apartment, my housing. Um, I ended, you know, I did 76 days and took a deal to get out. And when I got out, I didn't have anything. 
And so then I began to kind of see the correlation, you know, when I was kind of on this road to, to well-being and becoming privy to the other racial disparities in Spokane County, you know, I could just see like the links between that. So, you know, I have, I was at those meetings too, when the bail project came to town and, and I was just like, yes, you know, if, <laughs> if given, I look back at my, my life and I was like, you know, if I were given the opportunity to be OR'd or to be bailed out, you know, I think about how things would have been, could have been, you know, right. yeah. You, you said something about that uh, when you were in jail for 76 days. The only reason you were in jail for that long was just because you couldn't afford bail, right? Because I could not afford bail. And the, the only reason why I was in on a bail that I couldn't obtain was because I had this history of not right. appearing in right. court. And so one of the things we know or we've sort of accepted as science, like even our sheriff would accept, <laughs> as, has accepted it as science, is that if you're an addict, relapse is almost inevitable and or it's so common that you we shouldn't yes. like be surprised by it. It happens a lot. It's very difficult. It's a, it's a disease that is incredibly hard to kick. And the way you guys both describe it, it's you're, you're sort of in almost remission. You're never, you know, there's always an opportunity to, to relapse. And so what you were saying here, just to sort of underscore it for people was like, you were on that path to getting clean and you had been clean for at various points and and Mm -hmm. gotten your life together. And then you relapsed the way many, most people do. And that it was actually used against you in subsequent jail Mm -hmm. time. So one sort of presumption one would have if even the criminal justice system or the, what do you guys call it? You don't call it the justice system. What do you call it? Criminal legal system. The criminal legal system, right? Because there's not much justice in it, but uh, (laughs) the criminal legal system is like if they, at the very least, acknowledge that this is going to be a process, you shouldn't be making it harder and harder for people to get out every time if, if you want them to get clean, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. So, sorry, that was just a little rambly. I might even cut that because it was just me going off for a sec. But, um, <laughs> so I, I wanted to just get your stories out there because I wanted you, you guys can speak it to this with like firsthand. You're both seen as like pillars of the community now, you know, and I think if people didn't know this, this background about you, yeah. they might not have guessed, right? And so I just want to sort of, you guys both are, God, it's so gross to even say it like this, but I think what most people would call like redemption stories, like you made good or whatever. Uh, so I just wanted to call that out because like, just to m- make it clear that like, just cause you've been in jail, it doesn't mean you're like forever broken because I think that's what the system sort of suggests to us. Right. Yeah, yeah. certainly. So can you talk about how, con- so Sabrina, I think after Angel told the story last time, you said that th- these stories are very, very common in, in our jail, in all jails across the country, but in our jail specifically. Can maybe we could just talk about that a little bit. How common is this story? Um, so the thing is that I think, you know, you really highlighted and I just kind of want to pull out a little bit more is that, you know, people like myself and like Angel and, you know, Lane Pavey and Tara Simmons and um, many of these like well-known formerly incarcerated people who have made something of their lives, you know, are often held up as the exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. 
And, <laughs> and the reality is that we're just like everybody else. We had opportunity and we took it and we changed our lives. And while a lot of people may not have similar opportunities, especially black and brown folks and, you know, any marginalized population may not have the same opportunities to kind of overcome this system. Most of the people don't wind up back in jail. Most people go on to live regular lives. You know, we're your neighbors, right? You know, we're, we're more than our, our worst day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so having that kind of mindset and knowing that for myself and, and I see it in angel as well. Um, as we work with our clients, um, and recognizing that they're whole complete people, they're not broken. They're not, you know, less than they don't, they aren't to be pitied. We know that, that our, that the people that we serve are whole, complete, amazing people. And they, they possess all of the answers to what they need inside of them. And they just need someone to, you know, believe in them and, and maybe help them with the logistics, you know, and that's, that's what we're here to do. Because the only thing, the only reason they are your clients and not some, you know, again, relatively, let's just say like a, a, a middle-class white man like myself, for example, who got pulled in for a similar crime. Well, it's not even, I might not even gotten pulled in for the same crime or whatever, you know, but it's that they're poor, right? They they just can't achieve that bail. That's the only sort of determining factor. Yeah. And I would just also draw attention to the fact that, you know, a study was done not too long ago that showed that something like 40 to 60% of Americans cannot afford a $400 emergency. Yep. I saw that same one. Yep. And that's, so that's not even like quote unquote, what we think of as poor people. Absolutely. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. And we, there was recently a, a disparities memo in the, the, or it was, was it the JFA um, report said that African-American people are 12 times more likely in Spokane to be incarcerated than white people and, and natives are five times more likely. And because of the way our economy is set up, those are also tend to be the people who are more likely to be experiencing poverty in our society. And so right. that's where like when people talk about, you know, intersectional justice and whatnot, it's like you see the way that these things collide together. It's like not only is there racial bias, there's sort of there's economic bias mm-hmm. playing into the situation where, yeah, of course, you've got 12. It's 12 X. But not only is it, you know, 12 times more likely for a black person to end up in jail they're more likely to be poor, which means they're more likely to just sit in jail forever, which means that it's more likely that they're going to be, their communities are going to be the ones that are torn apart and not like somebody who lives up on the South Hill, for example. Absolutely. Right. 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 So maybe you guys, if you can just sort of encapsulate the, the reason you think we need to do away for all of these reasons that we've hopefully spent 30, 40 minutes really coming to a point on, why do we need to just in the bail projects ideal world, its mission, not just make it easier to bail people out, but to get rid of cash bail entirely? Whoever wants to take that, sorry, just step right up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't, Angel, you can go. I know you know what I was going to talk about. Like, we can't talk about bail reform without also talking about pretrial 
justice, pretrial detention. Right. Uh, you know, that that's something that, you know, we, you know, that's the hashtag of my life as a bail disruptor for the bail project is, you know, and mass incarceration and, right. and pretrial detention and cash bail because up to 70% of the population are being held on bail that they just can't afford. You know, sorry, not to put a, too fine of a point on that. That is a national statistic that bears mm-hmm. itself out locally almost perfectly. 70% yes. of people in county jails, 70% mm-hmm. are not convicted of anything. They are pretrial. They are sitting there waiting for their day in court. Right. Okay. Yes. And that's why, like, that's why we have to do this and, and change it because you can eliminate cash bail and replace it with something just as harmful, like a risk assessment tool or an algorithm. Sure. It's that pretrial detention at the end of the day that flies in the very, in the face of the, one of the very like most foundational premises of this country is that you are innocent until proven guilty. Exactly. But if we're talking if we're talking about people who are innocent because they haven't been proven guilty, then why are they being punished by being held in jails? Right. And if the assumption is, if you want to make the assumption that they're a danger to society, it shouldn't be whether or not they're able to pay bail that's the rubric you use to keep them there, right? Preach. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> Let me see. We've kind of jumped. Um, best laid plans. I got to find my. Okay. So here's where. Here's where. Okay. Now, now I finally. <laughs> Maybe now is a good time to talk about the marinator. So, Sabrina, one of the things, one of the grossest things I heard you say, and whatever, we, I guess we shouldn't <laughs> assume that, that law enforcement are superhuman. We shouldn't assume that they don't engage in gallows humor like all of us do. Like, I spend most of my time, like, making the darkest jokes in the world because because life is <laughs> seems so bleak it's like you have to laugh at it or you'll go crazy so i guess you know taking myself as a as a model i like i don't really i'm never really surprised things that come out of people's mouths but i still was despite <laughs> despite that i was kind of shocked to hear you guys say that i don't know if it's the prosecutors or the law or law enforcement or everybody calls jail the marinator can you talk about what that is and what it means? Yeah. So, um, you know, you think about marinating, right? You just like... Like a steak. Yeah, yeah. like a steak. And you you keep it in there. You, you marinate it to get it ready. Yeah. To get cooked. <laughs> right? And so, you know, you hold people in jail and you hold them there long enough eventually they're going to start feeling hopeless. Like, you know, uh, and they're going to, I can speak on my own story. You know, I, my, my situation was, I was 21 years old. I got into an argument with my upstairs neighbor. He had a gun and he he started beating me up um, and I fought back and he dropped the gun and I picked it up and pointed it at him and told him to stop. And he said no and started coming at me again. So I pulled the trigger. Whoa. The gun didn't even, the gun did not go off. Wow. And he tackled me and held me there until the police came. And I'd never been in trouble before. Um, and so they asked if I wanted to make a statement. And I, of course, I, of course I want to make a statement. And so I told them what happened and they arrested me and took me to the jail for attempted first degree murder. 
Oh my God. They gave me a $250,000 bail and I was there for five months. I met my attorney like twice, my public defender. I didn't know anybody. Nobody in my family had been to prison. I couldn't get any good advice. Like, and every, all of the women that I was in the jail with were like, you know, they're, they're going to make an example of you. If they're offering you a plea bargain, you should probably take it. And for five months, I I said, no, I I didn't do this the way that they said it. I was protecting myself. Like, and nobody even got hurt. And after five months of sitting in the county jail and being told that if I didn't take a plea bargain and we went to trial, I was going to lose and get 26 years in prison. Finally, after five months came to me with a plea bargain for um, first degree assault, nine years, four months, strikeable offense. You know, I was like, God, that sounds a lot better than 26 years. For Mm. attempted murder, right? And and were you in Washington? This was Washington, right? 26 years is is technically a life sentence in Washington. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's just think about that. Let's just pause for a second. They charged you with an offense that carries a life sentence. Yeah. And then they... After then they let you cook, right? Or they let you marinate, marinate. for nine for nine or for uh, five months. Five months, yeah. Sorry. You they mar- you marinate for five months and then they're like, Oh, just take this other offense that's only nine years. Yeah. And not only that, like they made it sound super good. They were like, It's only nine years. Only nine years. <laughs> yeah. You'll get a third off for good time, which will put you at six years, and you'll get to go to work release, you know, six months short. So technically Oh, and you've already sat in jail for five, for six months. So technically, you're only going to be in prison for five years. You're still going to be... You're practically done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can't afford not to take this deal. Absolutely. And so, you know, I was like, do you think this is the best it's going to get? My attorney says, yeah. And so what what would I, what do I do? Of course, I'm going right. to take the plea bargain, you know? Right. Uh, how can you maintain your innocence in the face of so much pressure? Right. And Angel, you had a similar story, right? I I do. Um, Yeah, tell me. You know, actually, the last time I was in jail was in 2015. I I was um, arrested after I was assaulted by somebody, and um, and they, uh, you know, the people that were with him said that I pulled out a gun, and they described it to the police that it was a black gun with a blue light. Um, it was my phone in my hand <laughs> and, oh my and, um, I was charged, uh, I was booked in Spokane County jail on a first degree assault with a deadly weapon. Um, I'm, I'm already a convicted felon. Um, so, you know, I sat in jail initially with this, um, being charged with first degree assault with, by the time I went to my arraignment, you know, they had whittled it down to a second degree assault with a deadly weapon. If convicted, I was looking at doing like at least three years on that charge and then plus five years for the gun enhancement that was never there. Um, You know, I went in, uh, I was already subject to the child welfare system. I was really struggling uh, in my sobriety. I was barely maintaining a, an apartment housing under a domestic violence program. Um, you know, and I sat in jail and my bail was set at $50,000. I, I wasn't able to get out. I wasn't even able to almost achieve yeah. that. Wow. How could you? Um, you know, 
a month into that, you know, my bail got reduced down to $5,000 and I still wasn't able to do that. And in the midst of that, you know, I was missing my court dates for my uh, family law case. I was... So, sorry, just just to pause there, do that mean, so if you're in, if you're locked up for something else, you, you're going to miss your other court dates, which means you're further, <laughs> like, I don't even, God, yes. holy, ugh, I didn't even realize that's the way that works. No. You think, it, oh my God. No, it's true. It, that is, that is the case. We see that so many times where we have to go to bat, you know, go to bat for our clients who are in custody and call up other jurisdictions or if they happen to, you know, go down and have to do some time somewhere else, you know, we have to go to bat for them here in Spokane. I, that happens. And so, you know, here I am under all this pressure and then getting visited by my, my own um, housing case manager um, being asked to uh, forfeit my my place in this, this housing program. And, um, you know, 76 days later, I took a deal. I said, yeah. you know, let me plead out to to me assaulting somebody else. You know, it, it boiled down to a simple assault. But still, you know, I was the one who was assaulted. Right. And, and I got out and I got out to nothing. I didn't have you know, I was further away from my children. I was, I was homeless, you know? So, you know, I just, yeah. I see that and, and my life quickly took a decline <laughs> after that. So maybe what we could do is just speculate a little bit. Like what would, how would Sabrina and Angel's stories have been different if Sabrina and Angel had been bail disruptors at this time? If that makes sense. If, if you guys had had the service you now provide to lean on, how would your stories have looked different? I mean, like Angel, you would have been able to what get, get bail and then and then make those court dates. So you wouldn't fall behind, like getting your kids and maybe be able to sort of have conversations with your housing and, or, and maybe a little bit of a support system to make sure exactly. you stayed housed. What else? I think about that. You know, I was in a domestic violence housing program you know, and I was the one assaulted. I was actually the victim. And I know that, you know, um, I could have accessed victim services. I could have been able to, um, you know, and through them, you know, find some behavioral health um, connections, you know, could that be mental health? Certainly. Could that be um, substance use treatment? Certainly. Um, I would have been able to maintain my housing. I could have been able to participate in, um, You know, the key to my case that time was somebody uh, was my witness or my witnesses. um, And, you know, they just weren't being able to be accessed. I could have I could have been able to find them. I could have been able to have them interviewed. You know, there were all these things. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, I'm sitting in jail unable to do anything. You could have actually fought that case and been like, okay, cool. If I if I had a gun, prove I had a gun. Right. Right. If, If it was a phone. You would have had if you would have actually gone to trial. This is the thing that's qualitatively different about taking yes. a plea or a pardon versus going to trial with something. Is like, okay, prove it. Like that's the whole innocent until proven guilty thing. That's the the guilty beyond a reasonable doubt thing. It's like you gave me a gun enhancement on an assault charge. You got to prove I had a gun. Yes. Right. Right. That was exactly it, and and that was actually in the end why I was even able to be offered this, you know, fourth degree assault on a silver platter, you know, right. but, but not, be, but not before being homeless and losing your kids. Right. And, yeah. and not before being arrested 
for having this said gun. You know what I mean? Like it, it was yeah, just, in the first place, yeah. Right. What was there a linchpin for ar- arresting me and charging me and holding me all of that time in the end disappeared, <laughs> you know, and, and we see this with our clients all of the time. You know, we have been able to post bail for secure freedom for somebody so that they can get out and fight their case where they are literally like a day away from going back into court and taking oh, this plea deal. That's incredible. And, and that's something that, that we do. And we, we, we see that we, you know, because before we bail them out, we take a look at their case and we can see this lineup of court dates and we're, we're like, Oh, look at, here's a, a a motion hearing they're getting ready to take a deal you know what i mean let's go in and yeah and not knowing because we don't get involved with with matters in their case you know that's for their attorney but you know we do know that if we can encourage them to fight their case from the outside they're going to get a better case outcome they are they just are and um could that be a dismissal certainly how many times we've done that is just really remarkable Okay, I think I'm going to end it there for this week so that I can actually get this out on Independence Day. <laughs> it would be a really stupid conceit if this came out on July 5th. Although given how late it is, a lot of you are probably celebrating the birth of our nation by blowing a piece of it up right now. So I don't expect you to be listening to it today, but I at least want to. I've set the intention and I want to get it out today. So one more time briefly, check out that essay about how crime went down in Spokane after we let people out due to COVID. And then tune in next week for the second half of this interview. Bye.